Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome back. Um, Courtney, how is your quarantine going this week? It's going good. Um, Not much going on, but Kevin has been wanting me to play video games with him. And so we've been playing this game called Seven Days to Die. This isn't an ad, but if they want to sponsor us, sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, so basically what it is, is it's like you're dropped off into this like post-apocalyptic world and you're just like sitting there like naked with nothing but this like rundown house behind you and you have to try and like survive zombies and find food and find water and all that so it's really fun but we were playing that until late last night just uh doing some stuff but it was really fun that sounds super fun um yeah, we haven't really been doing a whole lot. Andrew plays a lot of video games. I just mostly read books and watch TV. Um, it's been really rainy this week, so I don't like that because then I can't take my dogs on walks every day. So they get a little stir-crazy, and I get a little stir-crazy. <laughs> so someone's got to walk me every day. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, it was like storming here yesterday. Like we could see lightning, thunder, like it was crazy. Yeah, it stormed earlier in the week, and Rosie is not afraid of storms, even though she's afraid of literally everything else in the world. <laughs> um, but apparently Dolly is, because she was just laying there with her blanket and shaking, and it was really sad. Aww. Um, but she has a lot of anxiety, so sometimes us, like, trying to, like, cuddle her, like, stresses her out more. So <laughs> it's hard for me because I'm like, I want to love on you. And she's like, I don't know. I'm scared. Please don't. And, yeah. So um, also speaking of animals, I'm going to apologize in advance if you can hear my cat purring um, because he decided to get super close to the mic today. So hopefully you enjoy a little a little background cat purr, but hopefully it won't be there. But anyway. So we decided to do something a little bit different today. Um, So we're actually going to cover four smaller cases. So we couldn't really find enough information about each one to make it like its own full-length episode, but they are all themed around vigilante justice. Um, So this was a recommendation, so. Yeah, my friend John, who I gave a shout out to last week or the week before, Days don't exist anymore, so I'm not really sure. (laughs) Nope. What are days? I don't know what day it is. Um, He recommended this. Uh, He was listening to some true crime podcasts and was getting, like, bummed out because everything was sad and depressing. So he wanted a little bit of vigilante justice, which we'll get into. So, Jacqueline, go ahead. Um, So I just wanted to start with a little bit of the history of vigilantism. Um, So we got this information from the Claremont Journal of Law and Public Policy. Um, So as defined by the Legal Information Institute, vigilante justice is the, quote, actions of a single person or group of people who claim to enforce the law but lack the legal authority to do so, end quote. Um, So technically, vigilantism itself is not illegal, um, but most of the time its actions involve illegal activities. So a lot of times the issue with vigilantism is that even though it's well-intentioned, it can disrupt actual law enforcement procedures. Um, So you may be like getting in their way and, you know, they may have certain plans and whatever you're doing just kind of overrides that and it makes it more difficult for them to pursue and arrest and convict and so on and so forth. Typically, vigilante justice comes about when current systems of law enforcement and criminal justice are inadequate, so people feel like they need to take the law into their own hands. Um, And citizen's arrest is kind of a legal form of vigilante justice in the United States. I don't know about other countries, Um, but citizen's arrest is when a private individual can arrest someone without a warrant, Um, but the laws do vary from state to state, so don't assume that it's the case for everywhere. Um, But the laws for citizen's arrest are very strict, so citizens must adhere to these while engaging in a citizen's arrest, or they could face criminal or civil charges. So just because you see someone doing something illegal and you decide, oh, well, I'm going to go hold them and wait for the police, make sure you know exactly what the laws are because you yourself could end up in criminal trouble. Um, Because citizens are held to a much higher standard of proof than law enforcement, um, and My personal thought was just like, well, law enforcement's not really held to 
a high standard of proof. But anyway, <laughs> so um, so full vigilanteism includes actual punishment and not just the arrest. So that's why citizen's arrest is like kind of a form of vigilante justice, but it's not considered like full vigilanteism because citizen's arrest is basically I'm going to hold you until the police get here to take over the rest of the criminal justice system versus like I'm a vigilante, I arrested someone and doled out the punishment myself. So that's kind of like the difference between the two. Yeah. And so vigilanteism is very dangerous and not recommended by this podcast. No. Just wanted to put that disclaimer out here in case any listeners are like, maybe I should go. Just don't do it. No. We do not condone the actions of the individuals in these cases. <laughs> no. So, but there are a lot of vigilantes within, like, media. So, media, of course, loves this. Mm-hmm. Um, the Probably the most popular example is Batman. You know, he, mm-hmm. yep. he's, you know, goes out and gets these bad guys and all that. Um, but the one I really wanted to dive deep into, because I know more about, is Dexter. So, Dexter is a book series by Jeff Lindsay, and it was made into a TV show on Showtime. I didn't know it was a book. Yeah, it's a whole book series. There's a bunch of them. I have the first two, but I haven't read them yet. But now I have a lot of time in quarantine, so I might get into that. (laughs) I feel like I need to put those on my to-read list. Yes. Thank you. You should watch the show. I know you've tried and didn't, but you need to watch it. (laughs) I don't know what. I've watched the first, like, five episodes, like, three times. I don't know what it is because it seems right down my alley. I don't know why I have such an issue getting into it, but... Maybe I'll try again when I finish Veronica Mars. Maybe that'll be my next one. And so Dexter Morgan is a forensic blood splatter analyst for the Miami Metro Police Department. And so when he was a young child, he did see his mother murdered right in front of him. He was adopted by a detective who raised him and he started to notice that he kind of had these tendencies to kill who got, you know, a little bit too excited when he was hunting, a little bit, you know, (laughs) a little little worrisome. Mm -hmm. So he noticed this and decided to train him to have an ethical code. And so they called it the code or the code of Harry in the show. Um, And so basically in this code, Dexter can kill people, but he can only kill them after he's found definitive proof that they are murderers. Hmm. So he can't just kill anyone. Okay. They have to, he has to do the research and make sure and have proof that they are a murderer. Interesting. So this is like a great example of this vigilante justice because he is finding them and he does punish them. It is the full vigilanteism. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like a serial killer using his power for good, per se. But um, it also kind of comes into a lot of issues, though, because, you know, like the Miami Police Department looks like they're not catching any killers, you know. All that kind of thing, and that victims don't get the full justice because, I mean, Dexter can't go to them and be like, don't worry, <laughs> I killed them. So, <laughs> but this is just a really great example of vigilanteism. Very nice. Courtney and I do not know each other's stories, so we researched our own stories separately so that we can tell them to each other. So I just wanted to put that out there before we get started. Yeah. Okay, so this one is mine. Um, John, This is the one that John sent to me. And I got my information from an ABC News article and a National Post article. So in 2012, in Lavaca County, Texas, um, which is between Shiner and Yolkum, Texas, which I'll go a little further. It's about an hour and a half east of San Antonio. Thank you for that deep dive into Texas geography. I appreciate that. Because I was like, I don't know where this is. I I don't know. (laughs) So it's like just east of San Antonio. And so 911 receives a call. From a very frantic man, and he's saying, I need an ambulance. I need it immediately. Um, And this call came from his family farm, and it was very remote. And so paramedics are having trouble finding the location. Mm -hmm. He's like, I don't know what to do. And he's kind of, like, yelling and getting very, like, agitated because they're not coming. And he's like, this man's going to die on me. Like, I need you to hurry. You know, um, and this was, like, a five-minute 911 call and it was very tense and he's like I'm about to just put him in my truck and drive him to the hospital like you guys need to come right now Mm -hmm. so the man who was injured was Jesus Mora Flores he was a ranch hand working on the family farm Um, he was hired to help with the horses so a witness had seen him forcibly carrying a five-year-old girl into a secluded area so the witness wasn't sure what to do so she ran to get the girl's father Um, And the father could hear his daughter screaming, and so he runs toward her, and he does find her and Flores both with their underwear down. Mm. 
So the dad pulled Flores off of her, just punched him in the head and neck, and this is when he became unresponsive, and the man called 911. Um, examination later had confirmed a sexual assault did occur, mm-hmm. and the 23-year-old father's name has not been released to protect the identity of his daughter. Yes. The father was never arrested, mm-hmm. um, but Flora's death was investigated as a homicide. The father's attorney, Vanna Husser, said that the father nor the family will ever give interviews. Um, and she said the father is a peaceful soul. He never intended to kill anyone. Um, a neighbor described the father as easygoing and polite. So in Texas... Um, Deadly force is authorized and justified in order to stop an aggravated sexual assault. Or sexual assault in general. So the district attorney, Heather McMinn, said this is what the father appeared to be doing when they arrived. So a grand jury chose not to indict the father on any murder charges as he was using deadly force to protect Mm -hmm. his daughter. So yeah, that's the story on this one. And I just want to put a final statement. Um, I just want to say that Jesus Flores was born outside the U.S., but he was here legally with a green card in proper legal methods. Mm-hmm. So I don't want comments or emails about how undocumented immigrants are coming and causing crimes and doing all this. I don't want any of that. He was here legally. Mm-hmm. He was a bad person himself. Nothing else. Just wanted to put that disclaimer out there. Yes. Yes. And, you know, fun fact, undocumented immigrants as a whole commit less crimes than legal citizens of the United States. Just FYI. But, um, yeah, I feel like that's a a good example of, like, a true vigilante justice case where it's, like, like you said with Dexter, that he needs to be able to prove that this person murdered somebody. And a lot of the times it's, like, you don't catch someone in the act. Like, you find out about it and then you, like, intentionally harm them afterwards. And it's not like this was, like, a true, like, I didn't even mean to. I just took matters into my own hands because you're assaulting my daughter and I'm not going to let that happen. So Yeah, and like from the nine one one call, I mean I couldn't listen to the nine one one call, it wasn't out there, but um from everything described it sounds like he was like trying to save him. He was like, I I didn't mean to kill him. I was just trying to mm-hmm. protect my daughter. Yeah. So And just like I mean what a sad thing because obviously I don't think anyone ever wants to take a life, you know, and even though this person harmed your daughter, I'm sure that was very difficult for him to have to to live with that as well. Yeah. But, um, and we also do want to apologize that there is a lot of child sexual assault in this episode um, because most of the vigilante justice cases that you find revolve around that topic. So we do have multiple stories that include that. So we apologize. Um, yeah. And um, we might make this into a little bit of a series. Yeah. Um, you know, like future also episodes kind of doing this if you guys like this episode in general mm-hmm. um, because I did have a few going between and I was like, Kevin, should I do this one or the one I'm doing next? And he was like, oh, do the one, you know, that I'm doing next. And I was like, but it's a child, like a child abuse one. Like, can't we, can I do the other one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think all of these revolve around that. So we're, we're sorry, guys. But um, so mine, Courtney. Mm-hmm. So I got this information um, from an ABC News article and also a Knoxville News Sentinel article because this takes place in Knoxville, Tennessee. Ooh, go yes. balls. <laughs> So, in 2003, um, Kimberly Cunningham was having issues with her teenage daughter, Amanda. Um, So, she had previously been, like, very outgoing and bubbly, and she was into, like, school activities and, you know, hanging out with her friends and all this stuff, and her grades started dropping, and she just didn't really have much interest in, like, anything anymore. Um, And so, one day, apparently, Kimberly was really frustrated with her, and she put her in the car, and she was like, we're going to the juvenile detention center, and I'm just going to drop you off and let them deal with you. (laughs) Um, Because I guess she's like, I don't know what else to do with you. Yeah. Um, So, in the car, she started asking Amanda if she had been having problems with anyone, if anyone had been bothering her, or anything like that. And so, eventually, um, she starts, like, listing off people. She's like, what about this person? What about this person? Um, And so, she gets to one of her cousins, and Amanda says, yes, that he had touched her inappropriately. So, that's why she's having these issues. Um, Mm -hmm. So, then Kimberly picks up her son. Um, His name is Shane, and he was also a teenager at the time, and asks him if he had ever been molested by this cousin, and he says yes as well. Oh, Kimberly brings this up to her sister and her brother-in-law. So um, the sister wasn't actually married to the brother-in-law, but they were together for like 
15, 20 years, something like that. They had children together. So she brings this to their attention and they're basically like, no, this didn't happen. Um, they threaten her. They tell her that, you know, that she's going to ruin their lives. If she like tells people about this, that if they killed her, they would never find the body like threatening her, um, over this. Oh, geez. Yeah. So she does report it to the police. Um, so they do investigate, but no charges were ever filed for the cousin. So a few months later, on October 7th, 2003, Amanda basically is talking to her mom and she's like, look, there's more that I haven't told you. Like, I didn't really tell you everything. Um, But my uncle Coy, which is the father of the cousin that she mentioned, also raped me multiple times when I was nine. And she describes, like, in very vivid detail, like, she remembers, like, what she was wearing. Um, Mm -hmm. She was, like, over at his house and she says that he had assaulted her that day and then again later and told her not to tell anyone. Ooh. And then she said that her cousin, so Koi's son, started molesting her after that. So this was in the morning. So Kimberly drops Amanda off at school and then she drives to Slide Lock Tool Company, which is on Topside Road in Alcoa, Tennessee. Oh, I know that road. <laughs> yep, which I looked it up and it is four miles from where my mom used to live. So, oh. <laughs> so she drives to... Um, to his work and so she like goes in she asks somebody to send him outside they send him outside and she's like basically confronts him and is like Amanda said that you did this to her and she reports that he said quote what are you going to do about it so she pulls a gun out of her purse and she shoots him five times then reloads and shoots him five more times and then she gets in her car and drives away so (laughs) (laughs) oh damn so it's not funny. I'm sorry for laughing. But the witnesses say that she got into her car. She calmly drove away. She stopped at the stop sign, put on her blinker, and then pulled out onto the road. <laughs> for some reason, that was just such a, a weird visual image to me that, like, you just shot your brother-in-law 10 times at point-blank range. But you're going to stop at the stop sign and put on your blinker. Yeah. Um, so she drives immediately to the Knox County Sheriff's Office and told them, tells them that she shot someone. Um, So they ask to search her, and she says yes. They find the revolver in her purse. Um, She reports that she got the permit to carry um, after this family threatened her the first time when she accused the son of assaulting her children. Um, She later says that she doesn't remember actually shooting him, um, that she says that she just, like, blanked out, and she doesn't remember anything until she was in the car on the way to the police station. Um, So she went to trial in April of 2005 and was acquitted of first-degree murder, but the jury deadlocked on the charge of second-degree murder, um, and they reported that it was one woman who was the holdout against both charges. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically, it ended in a mistrial, and she went to trial again in October of 2005 um, and was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. So she was sentenced to four years in prison, but it was reduced to six months on appeal. Um, and so she actually died in June of 2010, um, at age 38. And so I tried to find more information on what happened to her. Um, but her obituary just says that she died quote peacefully at age 38. So I don't know if she was sick or. Yeah, that's really weird. I don't know. Um, but her lawyer, Bruce Poston, do you know this story? Mm-mm. So her lawyer, Bruce Poston, was indicted of in April of 2014 on felony charges for um, giving a woman whose husband he represented um, hydrocodone pills in exchange for sex. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah. And so that case was set to go to trial on October 28th, and Poston was going to plead guilty to a reduced misdemeanor charge of simple possession. On October 21st, so seven days before he was supposed to go to trial, he runs his car off the road um, on North Shore, and he runs it into a tree, and it caught on fire, and he was dead on arrival. And so investigation, and the investigators found no reason for the crash. Um, but his family said that he never mentioned suicide. He didn't leave a suicide note, um, but they didn't find anything, like, wrong with the car or anything like that. This is, like, 1230 in the afternoon. He just runs his car off the road on this busy road and runs into a tree. So. Well, then. It was just. That, that story just kept getting crazier. But. Yeah. It also makes me think, like, why does Knoxville have so many corrupt lawyers and judges? Uh-huh. Because. Um, there's Judge, mm-hmm. is it Richard mm-hmm. Baumgartner? Yeah, Judge Richard. I wasn't sure on his first name. Oh. Judge Richard Baumgartner. Um, he was he he was on a lot of 
trials, but the most famous in Knoxville, which we might cover someday, it's a really tough case. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's a tough one, but yeah. the Christian Newsom murders. Um, yeah. He was the judge on that where, you know, two young people were brutally, brutally murdered. And everyone in that got a retrial because the judge was on drugs. Yes. So basically all these like trials, these huge criminal trials in Knoxville that happened, um, where they knew who did it, people got retries because he was on drugs the whole time. So Knoxville is, we're doing great. (laughs) We could probably do like a whole episode on this man. I mean, at Knoxville, our county mayor is a former wrestler. (laughs) Yep. I can't make this up. Yep. So, my thing with this case, in your case, he caught the man in the act. Yeah. In this case, and and I'm not saying that we don't want to not believe victims, but this is the issue with taking matters into your own hands without any kind of, like, proof or further investigation. Like, again, I'm not saying that, that this girl was not raped. I'm just saying that if she wasn't, then you just murdered an innocent man. Yeah. That's kind of, I think, the whole issue with vigilantes is... Yes. There's no trial to, you know... Innocent until proven guilty is the whole U.S. motto. Should be, but... Yes, there there are no measures in place. So that is the story of Amanda Cunningham and Kimberly Cunningham and the death of Coy Hundley. That, that's crazy because I live in Knoxville and I have not heard that story. But yeah, I was also in high school in 2010, so I was probably just... Well, she died in 2010. This happened in 2003. Oh, so I would have been like nine. So... <laughs> yeah, so it's probably a reason you didn't know about it. <laughs> but yes, definitely had to cover that local one. So Okay, and so this one, this was my deep dive. This This case took me into sex offender registries in different states it's (laughs) it took me down a deep hole so this is the story of michael mullen do you know this one that name sounds familiar but i don't i don't know well michael mullen it's like maybe richard michael mullen was also a serial killer back in like the 70s oh so every time i tried to look up this guy the other guy came up (laughs) but like no relation no as far as you know not that i know So, I got information from a New York Times article, two Seattle Times articles, and our all-time favorite, (laughs) Murderpedia.org. Always a good one. So, in early September 2005, in Bellingham, Washington, Michael Mullen called 911 to confess to a double killing. Hmm. So, Michael Mullen was 36 years old um, in 2005, and he read this story about a child abuse case in Idaho that was caused by a repeat sex offender. So the Idaho case was Joseph Duncan III, um, and so he had been in jail for a sex offense Mm -hmm. and was on the sex offender registry. He was released, and he went to this family, um, and he beat three people with a hammer and then abducted their two children. Oh. So one of the children, Sashta, was eight, and she was found with Duncan when he was caught, and the body of her... Oh, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I know that story. Anyway. Oh. Well, it's not really about this story, but... Okay. And then the body of her brother, Dylan Nine, was found two days later. Um, and so Duncan was a level three sex offender, mm-hmm. which means they believed he had a high level of reoffending. Um, he was sentenced to the death penalty, mm-hmm. but he's still alive in prison in Washington. And his case was so upsetting, all jurors were offered counseling due to how horrific the evidence was. Ugh. Wow. So Michael Mullen had read about this case and he's like, this is ridiculous. I don't want this to happen again. I'm sick of these offenders reoffending. So I'm going to take matters into my own hand. <laughs> so Mullen went on to the Whatcom County Sheriff's Sex Offender Registry website. So this site does include names and addresses of sexual offenders, mm-hmm. um, which this is also a big debate in human rights organizations um and that's whether having your name and address Mm -hmm. saying you're a sex offender on a public site is violating your human rights Mm -hmm. um so that can be argued either way i think this story definitely is in the direction of it is violating their human rights because of what happened so he picked the home of hank essies um Mm -hmm. who also lived with two other sexual offenders can they 
Can they do that? Apparently. <laughs> oh, I thought you couldn't, like, associate with, like, other offenders or, like, other felons, but... I mean, I I don't know, because everything I've read is these three people were all within their parole and were doing everything they were supposed to. And maybe it varies, like, state by state or something like that. Yeah. Or, you know, depending on the offense. Like, it may be a condition of your parole and not, like, a general, like, blanket requirement. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So, on August 26th, he went to the home and he said he was an FBI agent. So, he wore a black hat with an FBI insignia. Um, Wow. I don't know if it was an official or one of those female body inspector ones. I hate myself. Why did I say that? Okay. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. In a blue jumpsuit. So, and he interviewed them and, like, interrogated them about their crimes. So, he did end up killing Victor Vasquez, who was 68, and Hank Essies, who was 49. So, Essies had served a five-year prison sentence for raping a 13-year-old boy. Mm. And Vasquez was convicted in 1991 for molesting several children. Mm. Um, There was a third roommate, James Russell, who was 42. And he let him go because he claimed, Mullen claimed, like, he showed remorse. Um, I went on a deep, 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 deep dive to find out what James Russell had done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can find no trace of him. Interesting. So all the news articles were very open about what the two murdered victims, Uh what they had done. Could not find anything on James Russell. Um, And I think they said, like, because he was like, hi, I need to go to work. I'm sorry for what I did. And so Mullen was like, okay, you show remorse, go. And he was kind of, like, on the run for a while. But then they eventually moved him to, like, an undisclosed location to, like, protect him. Mm Mm-hmm. Michael also did tell his brother um, that Victor and Hank were, like, bragging about their crimes when he was interviewing interviewing them. Oh. Um, oh. But his brother doesn't really think this is the case mm-hmm. because Michael forced these men to describe their crimes and say what happened in these crimes. So... Um, That's kind of weird. Yeah. So, um, and, you know... Michael's like, yeah, he said that, you know, it was the victim's fault. The victims were asking for it. They were bragging about it. But his brother is like, this doesn't make sense. Like, why would you brag about your crimes to someone you think is an FBI agent? Yeah. Like, you know, like, why would you do that? So his brother um, thinks that when Michael was like, hey, tell me your crimes, he just interpreted it as they were bragging. Like, because that's what he wanted to see. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it just doesn't add Mm -hmm. up. You know, like, why? That doesn't make any sense. Like, here's an FBI agent. Let me brag about, like, raping a child. Like, it doesn't really... Um, And his brother said that Michael had always kind of been a little disturbed. Mm -hmm. So, might have added into that. Um, My thing that I think is, like I said before, is weird. Like, why would he want them to describe what they did? Like... Yeah, I don't know. If you're someone who is so disgusted by this that you feel the need to, like, murder people over it? Why do you want to hear the descriptions of what they... I don't know. I just don't quite get that. It's very weird, and some things he says, it's even weirder. Oh, good. Okay. So, a letter was sent to newspaper and television stations just after the killings, warning that more sex offenders were going to die. So, the letter claimed there was a conspiracy to kill more sex offenders, And, you know, the officials knew that Michael Mullen did this, but they didn't know if Michael Mullen was a part of a bigger group who were just going to start going out and killing more sex offenders. Okay. So, so Michael Mullen was, like, arrested immediately after killing these two? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, because he called 911 and was like, Oh, yes. I killed these two people. (laughs) Sorry, I was so focused on him describing the crimes. Anyway, yes, correct. Yeah, you're good. (laughs) Yeah, so he didn't know, like, are there multiple people out here working as vigilantes? So the police then did notify every Whatcom County sex offender, like, be careful. Mm -hmm. If someone comes to your door, carefully vet them, make sure they're actually an official person. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I I know what you meant, but yeah. make sure they're a, an official person, not like a fake person. <laughs> make sure that, yeah, I know. I After I said it, I was like... Make sure they're not pretending to be a human person. <laughs> make sure they're an official, like, law enforcement agent or <laughs> whatever they're claiming to be. Selling you a Kirby vacuum. <laughs> they're claiming to... 
they're claiming to be a dog. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe don't let them into your house. They're not an official person. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, like I... Like I said, Michael Mullen was arrested for these crimes, and he did have um, a history of a few petty crimes in Washington and California, like theft, forgery, you know, nothing like Mm -hmm. too bad, I guess. Um, But he did have drug and alcohol issues as well. So he was convicted of these crimes and sentenced to 44 years in prison. And it is known as one of the nation's worst cases of vigilantism against sex offenders. Oh, wow. So after he was sentenced, he did write a letter to the Seattle Times saying how he just kept being moved from prison to prison and he's having issues adjusting. And he said he will not tolerate our children being abused. You know, he goes on more about how these two guys blamed their victims and felt no remorse, which again, his brother believes is just how he was interpreting that. Mm-hmm. Um And Mullen also stated a goal of wanting to beat Joseph Duncan to death so he can meet him in the afterlife for vengeance. Oh. So. Hmm. Wow. This guy's a little, little kooky. So. Did did he ever have any mental health diagnoses at any point? Not that I saw. Um, His brother really thinks that... Maybe the alcohol or drugs, just something really messed Mm -hmm. with him. And that maybe there were some traumas in his childhood that made him so angry about these. But no sight ever really said for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So Mullen did die in prison in 2007. He was found unresponsive in his cell and declared dead at a local hospital. Um, It was ruled a suicide due to some like blunt force trauma to his skull Um, Some letters found in his cell and the fact that he was away from other prisoners. But there's also some sketchy details about his death. (laughs) Because there was an autopsy and it revealed he died of pneumonia, but the manner of death was undetermined. And so, just so listeners know. Okay. Yeah. So, I had to go on a deep dive here. So. Okay. Basically, cause of death and manner of death are two separate things. Okay. So, cause of death is, like, a specific injury or disease that leads to death. Okay. So, you have heart disease, you have cancer, etc. So, manner of death is how the injury led to death. Mm -hmm. So, they know that he had pneumonia and he had this, like, lung issue. But they don't know if the pneumonia and lung issue officially caused his death. But the blunt force trauma to the head... Yeah. The, like, the medical examiner... Didn't bring anything up about that at all. Interesting. Okay. That was all the police department. I don't know. It's very weird. I hmm. did some deep dive. <laughs> that is weird. That sounds a little sketchy. Yes. And so mm-hmm. there was also drugs found in his system, but the coroner would not report the levels or if they were therapeutic drugs or not. Hmm. So he said there was medication, but not enough to cause death. And he said he believed... That the pneumonia interfered with his body getting oxygen. So I don't know if maybe he's like, he wasn't getting oxygen. He fell, hit his head. I don't know. It's kind of strange and it doesn't really add up because the police department was like, we think it's a suicide. And then he's like, Mm -hmm. he has pneumonia and like a lung issue with getting oxygen. And then like, but no official like, this is what he died of is available. Like there's no... Mm -hmm. And how old was he when he died? Um, he would have been 38. First of all, that's super weird because that's how old Kimberly was when she died. Yeah. Um. I just thought of that. I was like, oh, shit. But, and, and you know, pneumonia deaths can happen at any age, but it is unusual to die of pneumonia at age 38. Yeah, and that's why I'm like, I don't know So if there's something fishy going on with, like, I don't know. It's very, very weird. And everything is, like, conflicting information. Because basically, like, what I found was, like, mm-hmm. all the articles were, like, it was suicide. They believe it was suicide. He died. G- goodbye. Mm-hmm. And then this article I found on Murderpedia was, like, okay, well, all this stuff came out from the coroner about, mm-hmm. you know, like, cause of death, manner of death, blah, blah, blah. But they were just, like, well, yep, that's it. And weren't, like... It's very weird. <laughs> That's very weird. That is, wow, that is an interesting case. Yeah, that was another deep dive. 
I went on. Um, and I just wanted to say, like, on a final note, you know, Victor Vasquez and Hank Essies obviously committed horrible crimes. Um, but correction officers did note that they were making good progress. They're following all the rules, all the laws <laughs> with living on the sex offender registry. Neighbors weren't really thrilled to be living near sex offenders, but there was no issues, mm-hmm. like, no community problems. They hadn't reoffended. Mm-hmm. They are victims. They did commit horrible crimes, but they weren't necessarily, like, you know, like my case earlier where found in the act of doing it. You yes. know, this, these people had served their time for their crime and were trying to kind of, like, get back into society. So mm-hmm. there's that. Because that's the thing, you know, if you do your crime, then in the criminal justice system that we have set up in this country, you are free to, to some extent, return to society and try to live a normal and fulfilling life, which we know can be difficult with, you know, all of the restrictions that are placed on offenders. But like you said, they were following everything that they were supposed to do and realistically should have been allowed to show that they have been rehabilitated. Yeah, because that is supposed to be the goal of the criminal justice system. There's a lot of things in our country that prevent that. There's a lot of obstacles people have to go through, and that's why, like, reoffending is so high is because once you get out of prison, you're not really set up to, you know, you can't rent an apartment. You can't. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get a job, especially if you're a sex offender, you know, things like that. So, yes, that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. Yes. Maybe we'll, we'll maybe we'll do a, a further deep dive on that one day. Yeah, I have a master's in criminal justice, and this is what we talked about, like, every class. (laughs) So, the final case we're going to cover today is Bradley William. Are you familiar with this one? I don't believe so. Okay. Well, this is one that when I started doing the research, I was like, oh my god, Law & Order SCU did this episode. So, (laughs) which I did not realize was a true case, so. Which I also don't think we've really talk too much on this podcast about how deeply (laughs) devoted Jacqueline is to Law & Order SVU. Law and Order SVU is my all-time favorite show for eternity, so. And I don't know if I could say if I ever watched an episode from start to end. <laughs> it's We've been over this, guys. It's okay. I think our friendship's going to make it. Um, it's just something we have to deal with. I mean, if Jacqueline doesn't like Taco Bell, I cannot watch Law and Order SVU. Guys, Taco Bell's garbage. I'm sorry. You're garbage. I would like a real taco. <laughs> taco Bell has real tacos. <laughs> Taco Bell's garbage. I stand by what I said. Anyway. You're garbage. (laughs) I stand by what I said. (laughs) Um, Speaking of tacos, not really, but we went to this place last night that is a barbecue slash Tex-Mex place. (laughs) So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, Which they had a lot of stuff that looked really good, but we just got the like family barbecue pack. So it has like the buns and the meat and the sauce. And Mm -hmm. we got like mac and cheese and fries and baked beans and Courtney. This barbecue was so damn good. Like, it was one of the, like, I mean, you, you know how I get when, when a food's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was so good. Like, I'm like eating, I'm like, Andrew, have you eaten the barbecue yet? Andrew, have you eaten this yet? Andrew, this is so good. <laughs> anyway, it was just like, this, like, the meat was just like cooked perfectly. And it mm-hmm. just like had this delicious flavor. And they didn't give a lot of sauce, which you know how much I like sauce. Mm-hmm. So I was like, mm, I was a little hesitant. But it didn't even need that much sauce. Like, it was just, like, this juicy, tender, flavorful, like, pork sandwich. Anyway, this is Jacqueline and Courtney's Food Podcast. Thank you. Um, so, I got this information from a couple of news articles from McLean's and Ottawa Citizen, which are Canadian newspapers, as well as the Orange Coast Magazine in California. So, in 1997, in British Columbia, Canada, 17-year-old Bradley William was working on a computer program that would allow remote access to computers. So, he wasn't doing anything, like, with the intention of hacking computers. Like, he was legit working on a program that's like, oh, like, IT will be able to, like, get into someone's computer to help them out remotely. Um, Which is crazy because... Yeah, my work does that all the time. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's such a common thing now, but obviously in 1997, it wasn't. Um, But he's like like this, you know, teenage, like, computer genius, so he's, like, working on this program, um, and he's in a couple of different, like, chat rooms talking to other people who are into computers and, you know, that sort of thing. He spends a ton of time online, um, so when he's in a chat room, he's talking to a guy who offers up his six-year-old daughter to him for sex. Oh. Yeah. So, Bradley's like, um, what? 
So the man sends Bradley photos of the six-year-old. Um, and so Bradley's like, yep, nope, I'm going to send these to the police. Yeah. So he takes them to the police. Um, so this guy is arrested. So that is good because we definitely, you know, don't want him trying to offer up his six-year-old daughter for sex, whether or not anyone takes up the offer. Um, also, guys, I just realized that I can't read and my notes say Bradley Willman, not William. So this is Bradley Willman. Going great over here, guys. Quarantine's going good. <laughs> Oh, it's it's been a rough day for recording, guys. We had a lot of technological. <laughs> we have a lot of technical difficulties as well as word difficulties, <laughs> as well as Cordy and Jacqueline don't know how to talk sometimes. So I'm sorry. Um, so after this occasion, Bradley's like, "Hmm, I wonder how many more people are out there doing this, and is there anything I can do to help?" So remember, he's working on this program that would allow people to essentially hack into computers. Um, So he creates this program that basically when somebody clicks on a photo and downloads it to their computer, it gives him full access to their computer. So he can see everything on it. He can see their photos or videos. He can read their emails. So So it's like how hackers do now and they'll send you like a link and you click on the link. Yes. Complete access. Yep. Yep. So he set it up on these child pornography sites. So basically the way that he set it up is that it would pull a random photo so that he's not having to find and upload a photo himself because, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously he doesn't want to contribute to it. So he basically set it up where it would pull a random photo from the directory. It would look like a normal photo and then they would download it. And then it has this Trojan horse that allows him to access their, their whole computer. And I just want to point out here that when I was doing research for this case, I got a giant Google ad that says child porn is illegal at the top of my search. And I was like, oh boy, oh no, I did not mean to do this. (laughs) FBI is going to come knocking on your door. I know, I got on an FBI watch list. If you're listening to this, guys, I was just doing research for this case. I made my search very specific, but I guess anytime child porn is in a Google search, it's going to give you that disclaimer. Which, good for Google. Yes, absolutely. So... Bradley became known as omnipotent because he wanted to stay anonymous. Like, he didn't want police to know that it was him doing this um, because, you know, it's also illegal to hack into people's computers. Um, But he said he spent up to 16 hours a day hacking the pedophiles from computers. So over a three-year period, he got access to two to 3,000 computers where he was able to, like, find everything on there. Holy cow. So he sent all this information to a group called Predator Hunter, um, which was organized in Colorado. So they were like an online pedophile watch group. So basically he would send the information to them and then they would find the local police departments and then send it on. So that way um, Bradley was able to remain anonymous. Mm -hmm. Um, So in... 2001, Bradley stumbles upon the computer of a prominent Orange County, California Superior Court judge, Ronald Klein. Um, And so he finds photos as well as diary entries describing what he would like to do to young boys. Um, And it's like super specific. Yes. Like it's, it's not like a general like fantasy. It's like, here's a boy I met at the ballpark and I talked to him about his ice cream and then this is what I wanted to do to him. That's disgusting and creeps me out and makes me never want to have children. Yes, it's awful. So he sends the information off to the watch group like he always does and then a few months later, the U.S. police arrive at his door (laughs) Um, because I guess they found out he was the one that sent this information and with this being such a prominent person, they're like, all right, like we got to We got to dive more into this. Um, So basically, he had to sign an agreement with them that he wouldn't hack any more computers and they wouldn't arrest him for what he had done so far. Mm -hmm. So so he's like, okay. So he signs it and he, like, gives all the information um, to the police. So Ronald Klein is arrested and basically police found more than 100 images on his home and work computers. His work computer? His work computer, he's a superior court judge, and he has child porn on his work computer. Like, what? All I'm saying, obviously, this is 2020 and not 1990s, but I can't even get on YouTube on my work computer. (laughs) Yeah. I can't go to, like, foodcity.com to look at ads on my work computer. Like, how? 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 Just, like, why would you not think, hmm, maybe I should not put this here? Like, did you think you were above the law and so your computer would never be searched? Like, one 
don't look at child porn or fantasize about young children. Yes. But, like, two, like, don't do it on your work computer. <laughs> like, like, I just... What are, you, what are you doing at work? Are you not judging people? Or are you just, look like, anyway. Yeah. Um, and I did write down this quote from Klein's attorney because I was like, what? Um, so he said, quote, one problem with vigilante work like Wilman's is that someone might make a mistake and affect innocent people. It's a dangerous thing, end quote. A mistake? Well, he, I think he was talking about in general, because obviously he knows his client is guilty, but he's trying to dissuade people from doing that in general. No, I'm just saying, like, you're going to say a mistake. That's why in my notes I put LOL, but, like, police do that. So, like, police arrest innocent people all the time. But anyway, again, not condoning vigilante justice. I just thought that it was a humorous quote. I mean, in this case, I don't know. I mean... You shouldn't hack people's computers, but... Like, you had a good reason. You didn't kill anyone. Like, you provided the information to police. Like, I mean, this kind of goes back to the conversation of is it citizen's arrest or is it full vigilantism? Because you didn't dole out any punishments. You passed on the information to the appropriate authorities to dole out the punishments. So, you know. Yeah. Um, so in 2007, Ronald Klein was sentenced to 27 months in prison and this man faints during his sentencing hearing, so they had to take a 30-minute drink. <laughs> what? Drink? They had to drink for 30 minutes straight. <laughs> um, again, Jacqueline's trying to combine two words. They had to take a 30-minute break, and then in my notes I put dramatic much. Like, this man is a judge. Yeah. Like, And in some of the commentary that I was reading online, it's like, this man is sentenced how many people to life in prison, and he gets two years for a bunch of kitty porn and he faints during his sentencing hearing. Yeah. Like, I hope you faint. Go faint. Ugh, yes. But you know why he's probably fainting is because he's going to get sent to the same prison that he put all those people away. Oh, but you know he'll get protective custody, so it's fine because... Yeah. He'll go to one of those, like, cushy he's jails. important. Yeah. He gets to go to, like, a, a like a little club, you know? Like with the tennis courts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, overall, Bradley Wilman's work led to the arrest of 40 men um, in possession of and distributing child pornography. So. You know what, Bradley? This is what I give to you. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. You go, Bradley. And so, he now works um, for, I think it was like a a cell phone IT something or other company. Mm -hmm. um, The last I heard, but he unfortunately is no longer allowed to hack pedophile computers um he says that he wishes that he could because he enjoyed that work and it gave him a lot of purpose but since he signed an agreement saying that he would not do that or he would be arrested he is no longer doing that so i mean yeah but instead of get him a job at the fbi where like right like use your powers legally I like mean, come on honestly that was like genius like what he did like yeah and he wasn't just targeting like random people like he targeted people who looked on an illegal photo like <laughs> and he said that he tried really hard too to focus on those who had like multiple images and those who were sending images more than those who were downloading images yeah because i mean it especially that because you know I don't think there's any way to accidentally look at child porn. But, I mean, like you said, like, we put child porn in Google. By accident, something could have popped up. And punishing them, like, whatever. But if you're, like, sending it, like, you were actively a part of it. Yes, yes. Um, So those are our four Vigilante Justice series. So if you guys enjoyed this, let us know. Like I said, maybe we'll do another one. Or maybe we'll pick another kind of, like, niche crime to do like a little series on um you know because there's so many cases out there and some of them you have like one or two news articles and that's it so you know it's hard to find enough information to kind of go as in-depth as we would like to but we like doing these little mini stories for you guys so let us know yeah definitely and i found so many good possible stories um and one that i really wanted to do so hopefully we'll make it like a part two because yeah there was one that was, was real good but um yeah well we'll do this again yeah um so courtney what is your perk of the week okay my perk of the week is gonna sound super quarantine-ish but <laughs> um i had this coloring i have a bunch of coloring books um that not like kid coloring books like the adult coloring books Mm -hmm. um and I had one that was like a color by number because sometimes I get so much anxiety about picking a color for coloring on a coloring book that I (laughs) don't know what to do um so this color by number it's like two is blue and I just color it but it's been like these like really cool oh is that how a color by number works you can't see this but I'm flipping Jacqueline off so um 
No, it's like super fun because like I can just relax and just like look over and color it and not have to think. And they're these really cool like yeah. images. Like they're like Mandela images. So like they're these like oh. psychedelic little pictures. But it's been really uh-huh. relaxing to kind of just color and not have to think about it and just be like, there we go. Yeah, that's really cool. Awesome. Yeah. So Jacqueline, what's yours? Um, so my perk of the week. So last night um, we actually received an email from the family of mm-hmm. one of the cases that we covered. Um, I don't want to give any details because I don't know if they would be comfortable with that, but yeah. we did receive an email um, from a family member of a case that we covered thanking us for telling their story. Um, so it was just like super meaningful and you know, they said that they had listened to it and they appreciated the way that we told the story and that we were getting the story out there. So that just meant a lot to me and made me feel like maybe we're doing, you know, something good and not just like sitting in our rooms talking about crime and not doing yeah. anything about it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, and, and obviously we are such a very, very, very small part of people sharing these stories, but it was nice to be that she reached out to us personally to let us know that. So, and of course I, you know, cried when I was sending it to Courtney and then I'm trying to read it out loud to Andrew and I'm like crying through the whole email. And, yeah. I was like but, reading it to Kevin and he was like, I'm surprised you're not just like bawling. And I'm like, I'm trying to keep it together. <laughs> I don't like, I was like, I got like two sentences in and I was like, Ugh, like <laughs> but so that was, that was super nice. Yeah. It, it really meant a lot. And you know, mm-hmm. the main True crime has become so popular, and so much of it, yeah, I feel like is going in kind of like a wrong direction, like a little bit too like glamorizing killers, yes, and all that. And so, like, we're trying really hard to like tell the victims' stories and like their side. And mm-hmm. these stories are important. Like these stories that we told today that only have two news articles, they're just as important as like telling everyone else's story. Mm-hmm. So that's really what we're trying to do here. And yeah. it felt nice hearing from a family member that we were kind of achieving our goal in some form. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you want to reach out to us for any reason, um, you can email us at caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail. You can find us on Instagram um, at caffeinatedcrimespod. And if you are so inclined, you could give a lovely little donation on patreon.com slash caffeinatedcrimes. Um, and speaking of Patreon, so we shouted out our first three patrons in last week's episode, um, and so we have a new patron to shout out. Yes, we do. Um, which is our favorite little mini patron, um, Lily. So yes, thank you, Lily and Lily's parents, because um, I don't think <laughs> Lily clicked it. I don't know. She's pretty smart, so maybe she did. That's true. But, <laughs> um, so we love you guys, and thank you so much. Um, yeah. Anything else? As a final note, we would like to say this episode was recorded before the Ahmed Arbery video was released. Ahmed Arbery was chased down by two white men and shot while on a jog. They believed he had been robbing houses, but there was no evidence that houses had been robbed or that he was the culprit. We do not view this as vigilante justice. This was an attack on an unarmed black man. Our thoughts go out to the Arbery family, and we hope Ahmed will receive the justice he deserves. Go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime.